Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Mulholland, and with me is my partner, Henry Cassell, from the law firm of Horty, Springer, and Mattern in Pittsburgh, PA. And today we're going to talk to you a little bit on the podcast about joint ventures. Specifically, if you're thinking of going into a joint venture, look before you leap. Joint ventures come in all shapes and sizes. Some are with physicians, some are with other business partners, some are with maybe people you haven't met before. But what we wanted to do is just have an overview of the kind of questions you might want to ask and get answered before you commit to a joint venture. In today's deal-happy world, we're seeing joint ventures make a comeback. 10, 15 years ago, they were pretty much limited to deals with doctors on the medical staff. Now we're seeing ventures with other hospitals, still with doctors, although not as many because of the various legal issues that we'll discuss in a minute, but a lot more with other business partners and especially people you may never have dealt with before and that requires a special kind of due diligence doesn't it Dan? Absolutely you need to know who you're dealing with a lot of times somebody will come to you with a whiz-bang idea and you know the fundamental principle you all learned when you were in kindergarten if it's too good to be true it probably is but if you're dealing with somebody you haven't dealt with before or maybe you got connected with through an acquaintance or some mutual connection, do your due diligence on those individuals. You want to make sure, first of all, that there's no skeletons in their closet. You might want to check the exclusion list. If it's for some kind of high-risk area or dealing with people who you just can't identify that they had any business in healthcare before, you might even want to ask them to give you the authorization to do a full-scale background check. One of the things that might reveal is if they're litigious. So you don't want to get in bed with somebody who's going to sue you next year. If they're an organization that you haven't heard of, find out who owns them, both in terms of individual ownership or perhaps corporate ownership, because sometimes there's someone lurking behind the curtain, either a silent partner or a large organization, it might make it more difficult for you to achieve your objectives. And even if it's a large corporation, make sure this is authorized by the corporation and that their legal department has vetted it because we have seen a number of deals with big and seemingly legitimate corporations that in the end were some sort of contractual joint venture arrangement that never had the full backing of the corporation and raised a lot of legal issues. Yeah, and, and the other thing you can do and you should do anytime you're doing business with somebody else, check with other people who have done business with them, get references and call them. If those references say you should run away from this group of characters like a scalded dog, then do so, because otherwise you're going to get into more trouble than it's worth. Another thing, Henry, that I think is helpful is to do a cold-eyed analysis, not only developing pro formas for the joint venture, but try to look at how that's going to affect the hospital. A lot of these joint ventures will have the hospital throwing some of its revenue stream into a pot with its joint venture partners, which means they won't have all of that revenue coming into the hospital. And second, there may not be enough demand in the community to support the kind of business that the joint venture is proposing. So do your homework there on the financial pro forma side. And remember, if the hospital is a tax-exempt organization and it's currently operating and providing that service, you're receiving 100% of the revenue 
tax exempt. If you go into any kind of joint venture, you're going to, by definition, receive less than 50% of the revenue. And depending upon how it's organized, it may end up being taxable revenue, which would decrease your rate of return even further. So you want to understand what it is that you're currently doing, what the benefit to you is to enter into this deal, and to make sure that you won't end up inadvertently losing money in the long run either because the venture isn't a success because there isn't a demand for it or you're giving up a, re a stream of revenue that you were previously providing at a 100% tax-exempt basis. While we're on the tax exemption subject, if any of the investors are board members or companies that board members control, senior managers or other disqualified persons, then you need to do a further analysis to make sure that the terms of the transaction are such that would provide a reasonable benefit to the other partners who are disqualified persons under Section 4958 of the tax code to avoid excess benefit transaction penalty. Also, if the joint venture is going to be doing business on hospital property that's financed with tax-exempt bonds, you got to make sure that you're checking your bond covenants and also IRS guidance to make sure that whatever you're going to do through the joint venture in the debt finance property isn't going to result in a default on the tax-exempt status of those bonds. And it's generally a good idea to check any debt covenants before you get into a major business deal to make sure your creditors are okay with it, because if it fails, then they're not going to have a sense of humor about it. The IRS has not, I haven't even seen many opinions on the joint venture area of late, but they, many years ago, they issued several opinions, and there was even a tax case, I believe, where the IRS took the position that if a tax-exempt organization maintains less than a 51% controlling interest in a joint venture, then the return on investment that the hospital receives is taxable income. That doesn't mean that you'll that the hospital will jeopardize its tax exempt status, but it means that revenue that would otherwise be tax exempt will now be subject to tax. So not only are you getting less than 100%, your percentage of ownership will be decreased by whatever tax rate you have to pay, which is why if you're are in a situation where the joint venture is throwing off taxable revenue, you may want to consider uh, not using the hospital or other tax-exempt organization as the investor in that entity, but rather using a for-profit entity so that which is going to end up paying taxes anyway. Or perhaps even offset against some losses that your other for-profit operations have and wiping out the tax uh, liability. There's also some fraud and abuse issues that come up with any joint venture, especially one where you're partnering with physicians. We're not going to get into the weeds of all the ambulatory surgery center safe harbors. You can look at those at your own discretion. But there are some basic principles that the OIG has laid out over the years about joint ventures. If doctors are offered an investment interest, their proportionate interest has to be proportionate to their capital contribution. If, in the aggregate, the doctor's shares are larger than their aggregate capital contributions, that could be a problem too because it's seen as a benefit and perhaps an inducement for referrals that could violate the anti-kickback statute. If the venture allows doctors high rates of return for little or no financial risk, if the physicians are able to buy into the joint venture on a bootstrap basis where the joint venture or the hospital loans some money to do it, if there's any expectation either explicitly or implicitly that the doctors are going to be referring business to the joint venture, that's a red flag too. 
because again, the opportunity to invest in the joint venture in return for referrals could trigger an allegation later on that somehow the anti-kickback statute is implicated. And why does Dan talk about an ASC? Well, because an ambulatory surgery center is not a designated health service under the Stark Law. Therefore, Stark does not apply to a physician investment in an ASC. Why? Well, the stated reason is that ASCs are paid on a composite rate. The real reason is that it's a rule. There's no logic to the rule. It's just the way it is. As Dan has always told me, people who look like laws or hot dogs should watch neither being made. The, the Stark rules only apply if a designated health service is being provided. An inventory surgery center, a building investment is not a designated health service, and therefore Stark doesn't apply, but the anti-kickback statute will still apply. And as Dan said, there are safe harbors. We won't go into, as he said, we don't have the time, or believe me, you don't have the interest in listening to us go through the safe harbor rules. The one unusual thing about the safe harbor joint venture rules is that they require in order to satisfy safe harbor protection. Remember, safe harbors are voluntary, but in this area, you'd be well advised to stay within the safe harbor. The OIG is concerned that doctors not have a passive investment in the joint venture, and therefore, they want to see that one-third of the procedures that the physician provides that are capable of being provided in the ASC, not all the procedures the doctor provides, but only those that are capable of being provided in the ASC are provided in the ASC and that one-third of the revenue from the procedures, again, that can be provided in the ASC for that physician are done in the ASC. Now, that's a little counterintuitive because the OIG is saying in order to qualify for safe harbor protection, doctor, you have to perform services in the ASC for which the ASC is generating revenue, and that's true, but the rationale is that they want the physicians to be active investors, to actively utilize the ASC. That's why they want to make sure it's not a passive investment. That's why they'll only allow physicians who can actually use the ASC. They always refer to it as their workshop analysis so that the doctors utilizing the ASC as the workshop, they're actively involved in the ASC, and those rules will make a lot more sense if you keep that in mind as you uh, try to work your way through them. That's helpful, Henry. And just getting back to the hot dog analogy, does that apply to sushi? That's what I had for lunch today. I don't know whether I'd like to see that being made either. I, I don't want to even think about what you what you eat for lunch. As Henry once told me, he never eats anything that we could see its face looking at it. So, uh, luckily, I didn't with the sushi today. But there's some basic operational issues too that are fundamental to any business deal. First of all, you're probably going to have agreements between the joint venture and its participants, like the hospital, to do things to provide space, services, equipment, personnel, whatever. Those arrangements have to be in writing. They have to be at fair market value and be commercially reasonable for the joint venture to stand on its own from a fraud and abuse standpoint. And if there's any question, you may want to have a third-party fair market or reasonableness analysis done to make sure that what you're doing is appropriate. Second, you have to look at what licenses and permits are going to be required for operations. A lot of people say, hey, let's start a joint venture, make a million bucks, and we're going to start next month. Unfortunately, in a highly regulated environment like healthcare, that's not possible in most cases. So have a good checklist of things you're going to have to do, permits you're going to have to get, approvals you're going to have to seek 
before you pull the trigger on a joint venture. And in a related issue is, will you be paid for the services you provide in the joint venture? Everybody assumes that because it's healthcare, you're going to be paid for the services you provide. However, in order to be paid, especially from federal health care programs, you have to fit within their definition of a provider, and sometimes those definitions are not as straightforward as they may seem. So you want to make sure, before you enter into this thing, that you're going to be paid for it. The other thing you want to make sure is, do, do you have an enough of an initial capital investment to get through the beginning and the lean years so that you will be able to, hopefully it won't be years, but the, the time it takes between the, the time the services are first provided and when you start to see cash flowing from your accounts receivable. In healthcare, there's always a three to four month lag time between the time the service is provided and when most of the cash is seen. And therefore, you need to make sure that you have sufficient initial capital, and you need to understand if and when you have to make additional capital contributions as a condition of continuing in the joint venture. And the second most important thing in the joint venture beyond what are we going to do is how do we get out of it? You want to make sure there's some clearly defined parameters for exiting. You usually don't have a, an arrangement where either party can just exit at will. You might have a period of time after which you can exercise your right to exit. Then the question is, what, if any, value do you get for your shares in the joint venture, and how does the joint venture wind down? If you don't address that, then both parties could be stuck to it like a tar baby and have difficulty extricating themselves from a bad business deal. If there's buy-sell provisions, determine how the price is determined. One is the so-called Iroquois Clause, where one party gets to uh, offer to the other to buy or sell, and then the party who gets that offer to buy or sell decides what they're going to pay for it. There's some antitrust issues you have to look at, too, if you're going to joint venture with a competitor, which we're seeing more and more, where community hospitals are saying, we're going to try to joint venture on things that aren't within our core competency, and we'll do it with other people in the community who maybe are successful, nursing homes, home health agencies, urgent care centers, whatever. If you're dealing with a competitor in a joint venture, then it's very likely your state attorney general is going to want to do a review from an antitrust perspective. And aside from the effect on the market itself, they're going to look at things like non-compete clauses in the joint venture documents, and even things like non-solicitation clauses, which some attorneys general are challenging now. They call them no poaching arrangements, where one party agrees not to employ the uh, employees of the other party for a period of time after the joint venture. So, uh, and then finally, with respect to getting paid, as Henry said, if a hospital owns less than a 51% majority control of a joint venture, then that joint venture has to stand on its own from the standpoint of dealing with third-party payers and not share pricing information with the hospital and vice versa. So you have to have some firewalls in place to protect from inadvertent antitrust violations or price-fixing allegations and also make sure that the joint venture has a separate set of contracts with third-party payers. That's one of the reasons why you may want to have majority interest so that you can piggyback on your own existing third-party payer arrangements. Dealing with competitors, be very careful about people trying to split a market or geographic, uh, either product or geographic price fixing or geographic allocation agreements. Those are Section 1 per se violations of the antitrust laws. And they may sound like a great idea, but you really want to make sure you 
discuss them with your attorney because you uh, they, they raise some very significant antitrust issues. The other thing that you want to be careful of is people that are trying, they're selling you on a joint venture, but then they say, oh, and we don't have to worry about the feds because we're not going to take Medicare, Medicaid, or other federal health care dollars. There was a hospital in Texas in 2018 that was actually criminally prosecuted under a, something called the Travel Act, which was enacted by Bobby Kennedy in the 60s to go after the mob, but it was allowing the federal government to get jurisdiction to enforce a state bribery and corruption law that they thought was being, and not only they thought, but they were able to prove was being violated in a hospital that was set up on a joint venture basis with a number of physician owners where the allegation was that they weren't really getting paid a return on investment. They were being paid as uh, some sort of remuneration to refer, which would violate the anti-kickback statute, but they didn't accept Medicare. So this gave them another, the feds, another route to uh, use to get at something they didn't like. So bottom line, do your homework, plan accordingly. But remember what Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Hope this has been helpful for you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you.